I like to use illustrations often because I think they really help reinforce truth. And when it comes to the big idea for today, I think it can be really summed up in this illustration. Back way back, and when I was in high school playing on a U19 travel soccer team, we were in Huntington, West Virginia, and we were playing against the best team uh, by far in the U19 division. Many of the guys on the team were freshmen at Marshall University, so it's really great team we were playing, and we were locked in a really, really tight struggle with them, and right before the half, um, it was probably like 1-0, because we ended up losing that game 3-0, it was probably like 1-0 at that point, and uh, the ball was going out of bounds, and I was kind of shielding the defender off of the ball to let it roll out of bounds so that it would be our throw-in. Well, shoulder tackling in soccer is perfectly legal. You may not think tackling in soccer, but it, it really is as long as you do it within the rules and it's not over-aggressive and it, it, it contributes to, the, to what's going on in the situation. Well, this had no bearing on the situation. I mean, there was no reason for the guy to do what he did, but he came up on me at that point where the ball was like a, a foot from out of bounds and he shoulder tackled me. And I was at a relaxed moment, you know, because the ball's going out of bounds. I'm just going to grab it and throw it in. And it knocked me about five feet. It literally did. I mean, I got up and I was so mad. I mean, so mad to the point, have you ever been so angry that all you can see is just revenge in your eyes, right? That's all I wanted. And it was really close to half. And I just, in my mind, all I could do was focus on, I'm getting even with that guy right there. I'm, I'm getting even with him. Well, we went into the half. The entire half, I didn't remember a single thing the coach said. All I was focused in on that guy on that team who I wanted to get even with. And so when the half restarted, I care less about the game. I didn't care what was going on. I had my eyes set on him. I was a defender. He was in the midfield, uh, maybe the striker. And I, all I did was watch him and for the opportunity to get revenge in that situation. Well, I got my opportunity. He had the ball. And I literally went in cleats first right at his ankle, all right? I know it's bad, all right, Pastor? Shouldn't have been doing that, all right? I was, I was 17 at the point, that point, but I did that, all right? I did that. And the only time in my playing career, not my coaching career, but my playing career that I got a yellow card, which you know that what that means for those of you who know soccer. It's like a serious warning two and you're out. I really could have gotten a red card and ejected at that point. But I was so focused in on the moment that I missed out on really the bigger mission, what, what a purpose of the game was. All I wanted to do, because I was emotional, all I wanted to do was get even. I wanted to vent my frustration, and I didn't care less. I care less about the game, what happened with the game. I think there's many people today that have a similar kind of bent and focus in our culture today. We're so angry, we're so fearful, we're so set on the smaller details, which are important, but the smaller details that we miss our focus upon the main thing, which Stephen alluded to, was to go and to make disciples. That is the mission that Jesus left for us. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And so that's our purpose. So in this culture, no question it's a time of turmoil, it's a time of frustration, it's a time to be, many are fearful, but we cannot lose sight of the mission. We can't lose sight of what Jesus is calling us to do, even though there's this lot of disturbance and a lot of frustration going around us. And in John chapter 20, the disciples of Jesus are experiencing a time of conflict and frustration as well. Their world has been rocked. 
And we're going to see, even though our situation is much different than their situation, we're going to see how people respond in challenging times. So if you'll turn with me to John 20, verse 19, and so kind of, kind of as you're turning there to set the scene, Jesus has been crucified. He's been crucified. Now the tomb is empty, and the disciples are huddled together in a room, confused and scared. And they have lost faith, and they've defaulted to the flesh responding to this moment with their flesh. We're guilty of the same thing. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So today we're going to see six things from this text that I think have major implications for us so we don't allow the emotions of the moment to cloud our vision of what the, the mission is, what we're here for. Let's pray. We'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you for your word that gives us truth and it gives us life and it helps us in these times that we're in, these difficult times, God, to keep our focus on the main thing, and God, to keep our eyes upon you. And we know that it can be so subtle how that we can easily shift our eyes to the problems and become fearful and become angry and become frightened. And God, I pray that today we will remember you're sovereign and you're great and you're in control and you're working all things for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, first day of the week, Sunday, and this was not just any day of the week, Sunday, this was Resurrection Sunday, the first Resurrection Sunday. It's where we're at in the gospel. We've been here for quite a few weeks, and the doors being locked where the disciples were, nothing wrong with locking our doors, right? We lock our doors, but this is out of fear, for fear of the Jews. And if you tracked with us throughout this book, the Jews were, that's the, the phrase that John used for the religious authorities of the day, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, those who were in charge of first century Judaism. And so they were fearful and they were behind locked doors. And if you recall last week, Mary Magdalene had returned from the empty tomb and there she had encountered Jesus. And we saw the last verse that we looked at in verse 18, that she comes to the disciples she reports to the disciples, verse 18, I've seen the Lord, and not just seen him, I didn't just catch a glimpse of him. She said that he'd said things to her. He'd, she had talked to her. He had talked to her. And so Jesus had appeared, yet here we have the disciples, when they have heard this, they don't change their ways. They're still locked in. They keep the door locked, and they're fearful, I guess, of being arrested they're fearful of being accused to be the ones who stole the body of Jesus, possibly. Whatever the reason, they're afraid of the religious authorities. They're not convinced from Mary's, apparently from Mary's report that Jesus is really alive. And so, just like the disciples were fearful, many Christians today are fearful of the future. And fear really cripples us, doesn't it? I mean, think about your own experiences with fear. It prompts us to do or have very little to do with the mission we're on because we, we get distracted on our purpose. And Christians today, I think we're concerned because our nation was 
founded on Christian principles, Judeo-Christian ethics. And so we see that we're losing power. There's no question about it. And that's probably not a good motivation, but we are losing power. And I think a lot of times we don't, you know, we don't like to lose, right? And, and, and Christians are not in the position of power anymore in this post-Christian America. And we know it's not going to be easy and people are not going to be friendly to us like they once were. It's not going to give us the opportunity to influence culture the way that we once did because Christianity is looked at in this lower light. And so we find ourselves in this situation as political outsiders. And unfortunately, we're at that time again where we're going to start seeing all kinds of ads coming on the TV and the internet and popping up about elections, which are still a, you know, a long way away, but we're going to see those. And we're going to start getting angry and fearful. I mean, that's our natural response in most of our cases, angry, fearful, maybe, or a fight reaction to this. So how should the church respond? I think we get some principles from this passage. The first one is, fear is always the opposite of faith. Fear is always the opposite of faith. I read this on, when I was doing studying in, on the website Got Questions. I thought it was really good. It says, as unbelief gains the upper hand in our thoughts... Fear takes hold of our emotions. Our deliverance from fear and worry is based on faith, which is the very opposite of unbelief. And so you know how that happens to us. This unbelief takes place, this fear then comes out of it. And God reminds us that he's in control. And in the day that we live, we have to be willing to go against culture. We have to be willing to stand for our convictions. And we live in a day where a lot of people cave in, churches we see caving in, compromising on things that are very important biblically because they want to make it easy for them or they don't want to appear unloving. But I don't know about you, but I, I want to be this guy, all right? I show that on the screen. Go, go to the picture, not that picture, the other picture, the picture, uh, the picture of the group of guys. All right, we're not going to get there. All right, so if you find that picture, show that picture, right? So I don't want to be the guy in the crowd. It was a picture of all these soldiers during the time of Hitler and all these soldiers and these people who were saluting Hitler, and there's one guy standing there like this, unwilling to go along with the crowd. And I think that's what happens so oftentimes in culture is we just say hey, it's easier just to go along with it. But faith is the opposite of fear. Fear is the opposite of of faith. And so Romans 8:31 says God is if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us if God's for us? Do we believe that? That's where the faith comes in. If God's for us, no matter what happens, he's in control, nobody can be against us. Matthew 10:28. And do not fear those who kill the body because that's a real possibility. The disciples were facing that real possibility. Listen to me. That's a possibility. Persecution is a possibility. If you have grown up or been inundated with this kind of prosperity gospel kind of attitude where if you just trust God, then everything good happens for you, you're going to be sorely discouraged and surprised when persecution comes your way. Because they can kill the body, Jesus says. They can do that, but they can't kill the soul. So he says, rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell, Right? And then 1 Timothy 1.7, For God gave us not the spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And so the spirit of fear is the counterfeit of the spirit of faith. The spirit of God brings faith. 
So when people live under a spirit of fear for an extended period of time, you know what happens? They begin to lose touch with reality. Literally, they really do. They lose touch with reality. They don't think clearly when we go through these long periods where we're just fearful. And we turn inward and we just feel disoriented. We feel unsafe. We feel uncertain. But Jesus says to his disciples, look what he says. He brings peace to them. He says, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So peace is always the spirit-led response. Peace, no matter what's going on around you, peace is the spirit-led response. Now, it would be really easy to criticize the disciples at this point, right? I mean, we've looked at John 14, John 15, John 16, and John 17. In there, we find this very long sermon to the disciples by Jesus that we've called the farewell discourse, all right? Jesus has preached and taught and given specifics, preparing them for this very moment, yet what are they, what are they, how do they respond? They're locked in a room. They're scared. They're fearful. But lest we come down too hard on the disciples, because you know, my tendency would have been to walk in, there, walk in there and say, guys, what are you doing? Wake up, all right? Wake up. I've told you. I've prepared you for this moment. I've let you know in detail what's going to happen. Jesus doesn't do that. He speaks peace to them. He focuses their attention upon the mission. He's prepping them for what is to come. And again, be prepared. The world, we know, is in very bad shape. Interesting story this past week. Many of you know that my father is at Willow Ridge. He's really gone through a lot of health issues. He's been put on hospice care. His, he has Alzheimer's. He's not thinking clearly. His short-term memory is pretty much gone. But I'm not sure what happened this last week, but he had sort of this awakening that happened, all right? So I got a call, and they said, like, you need to come, and, and your dad thinks at any moment you're going to come in here and pick him up, and you're going to West Virginia for the funeral, and he's going to move back to West Virginia. And, and, and I showed up, and, and they said, he hasn't slept for two days, all right? He was sleeping all the time, all right? He was in bed for like a month straight. And during his time at Willow Ridge, rarely is TV interesting to him. He doesn't find any joy in watching TV whatsoever. Well, he stayed up in the common area, apparently, the people said that worked there, for like two nights watching the news, all right? Watching the news. So he's like got a 10 or 15-year gap in his memory. You watch the news, all of a sudden you wake up, and he told me, he's like, the world is really in bad shape, right? That's what he said to me. And I was like, yes, Dad, it's in terrible shape. It's awful shape. And we know that in the last 10 years, a lot has happened. A lot's happened since 2020. And, and statistics tell us that in the last 10 years, America demographically has shifted from a majority Christian country, and a lot of that is just like in theory only, right, to a minority Christian country. And so no more, again, is the power there that Christians once had. But fear is not our response to this. Peace is always the Spirit-led response to uncertainty. So the doors are locked, Jesus comes in, and he speaks to them, peace be with you. And interesting, he, he appears behind the locked door. So Jesus, this is an important theological point, Jesus had a bodily re resurrection, right? Jesus wasn't a spirit. He had a bodily resurrection, literally, physically, and his body was no less visible or tangible than those of the disciples who sat there in the room with them. But after the resurrection, Jesus, just like before, he could be recognized, he could eat, he had flesh and bones, he had the marks 
some, at least some of the marks of, of his crucifixion upon him. But something was different here because just like they found the grave clothes wrapped and Jesus was able to pass through the grave clothes, here he's able to pass right through the locked doors into their midst and he's standing there and he says, peace be with you. And he says it again in verse 21 and then we're going to see next week, he says this again in verse 26. So at one level, saying peace with you is a very common standard Jewish greeting, even still used today, shalom. But by repeating it, Jesus is reminding them of something he taught them in that farewell discourse. Back in chapter 14, verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So peace, this common Hebrew word shalom, it stood for so much more here than just trying to calm his disciples during this time. D.A. Carson writes, shalom on Easter evening is the complement of it is finished on the cross. So Jesus said, it's finished. Now he comes in, he says, peace. He speaks peace. And now he shows them peace. Look at verse 20. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So the cross and the empty tomb assure us that God is in control. The cross and the empty tomb assure us that God is in control. So he says, peace be with you. And then he shows them his hands and his side. Because these wounds are the source of our peace. His wounds are the source of our peace. He's declaring shalom for the world. Our peace with God is entirely dependent upon these wounds. The scars from that crucifixion, this crucifixion declare peace. Peace with God. It's what Isaiah wrote. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So the disciples, they're locked in this room, in this holy huddle, in fear. Jesus enters and he tells them peace and he shows them. Here's what was won at the cross. And then he says to them, go. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. So he repeats it. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You're not going to accomplish the mission in this room. You're not going to accomplish the mission by having the world locked out of here. I've given you a mission, and we go because Jesus came for us. We go because Jesus came for us. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As God commissioned Jesus for his mission, Jesus is commissioning us for our mission. And fear will only keep us isolated and off the mission field. Won't it? It will. Fear keeps us off the mission field. Let me ask you a really honest question. This is for you, not for your neighbor, not for your spouse. How emotionally healthy are you, honestly? How emotionally healthy are you? When we do marriage mentoring, one of the first things that we give out to couples is called the fight plan. And the fight plan deals with how to handle conflict. And look, conflict is not a bad thing, all right? Any relationship that's going to have progress and it's going to be satisfying, it's going to have conflict. It's inevitable. 
But it's important that we understand how to have conflict in a respectful, non-abusive spirit, and it can lead to a stronger and stronger marriage. But as you look at this list, it's amazing to me, in a Christian circles, how many people are so emotionally unhealthy that when it comes to conflict in your home, you begin calling names, slamming doors and stomping off, stonewalling or giving the silent treatment for hours or days, using words like, you always or you never, finger pointing verbally or physically, putting your finger in people's faces. And sadly, from my experience as pastor for a long time, pushing and hitting is not totally uncommon among Christians, and for sure swearing at one another is oftentimes normal, and yelling is often prevalent in Christian homes. Listen, these are signs of unhealthy people. If you consistently handle conflict in this way, you're emotionally unhealthy. And so how are you going to fulfill your mission for Jesus if you can't even keep it together in your own home? You're not being led by the Spirit. You're not letting the peace of Christ just come over your heart and control you. You're walking in the flesh. So if you can't even handle this correctly in your own home, get out there in the world where everybody's sinners, right? Where they're, they're doing stuff I can't even imagine. Like, I would never do that stuff. That stuff's so awful and terrible. And then you go home, and it's finger-pointing, yelling, screaming, calling names, cursing at one another. How are you going to fulfill your mission? Near the end of the book of Galatians, Paul reminds us that our emotional life and character flow from one of two streams, either the spirit or the flesh. It flows from either the spirit or the flesh. And the disciples are locked up in fear. And Jesus promises, here's the solution. He gives them the Holy Spirit, as was mentioned earlier. The Holy Spirit was provided to them to give them everything that Jesus promised, the ability to walk in the Spirit versus walking in the flesh. Look at verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that in Acts, we have the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was given again. And so are we seeing here two givings of the Holy Spirit, an earlier giving and, giving and then a later giving? Well, commentators are divided on exactly what's going on here. I feel like, but I respect your opinion if you don't agree, I feel like that the Holy Spirit was giving to the disciples here during this 40-day time period when Jesus would be on earth with them. He was giving them special power at that time to really soak in his words to take in the things that he was saying, and also to begin to record the things that Jesus was saying so they could write these down eventually as the disciples who recorded Scripture. And so I, I believe that this was a giving of the Holy Spirit, but not it was really more foreshadowing the, the greater giving of that. But the Holy Spirit is given to us. And the Holy Spirit was given to them, and he says, you have a mission and you have power, and we can live by that same power. We can live by the power of the Holy Spirit taking the word of Christ and allowing the word of Christ to work through us. Back, way back to John 7, I've quoted this many times in this, ser this sermon series after we left John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, because it's some of my favorite verses. It talks about how Jesus predicted the Holy Spirit was coming, and he said, out of your innermost being, 
out of your soul, out of deep down within who you are, will flow rivers of living water. And by this, it says he was talking about the Spirit who had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been crucified. And so Jesus was giving us the ability to have these rivers of living water. And fear, fight, frustration, those are not indicative of the Spirit's river flowing out of us. And so we're to be bold and we trust the gospel message that Jesus has given us. Look at verse 23. Jesus told his disciples, If you forgive the sins of any, they are, forgi- they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So he, he gives, just like in the Great Commission when he said, All authority has been given to me, and now he gives it to them. He delegates his authority to them. He's delegating to them gospel power. Gospel power. Jesus was telling his disciples they could honestly tell people who believed in their message that their sins were forgiven. Think about that. That was controversial in Jesus' time. Like Jesus telling people your sins are forgiven. No, 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 you can't do that. But now Jesus says, if you can trust the gospel message, when you give the gospel message, you can literally tell people when they put their faith in it that their sins are forgiven. They've been reconciled before God. But then on the opposite side, we can honestly tell people that who don't believe in the message that their sins are not forgiven and they still stand condemned before God in his eyes. Think about that. Think about the power, the authority that Jesus gives us in the gospel message. It's way bigger than, hey, there's a bomb in the room, right? This is serious stuff that lasts for eternity. People's eternal destiny is at stake. And while we know God is is the one who gives salvation, and he's the one that gives the faith for salvation, that doesn't separate us from the reality that we've been told to go and tell and that how can they hear if somebody doesn't preach the gospel, right? And so we've been given a responsibility to share the gospel truth. And it's powerful and it's strong. And it says, your sins can be forgiven. God can accept you. God will be for you, not against you, if you put your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you do not, you're condemned before God. You will continue on in your condemnation, and you will be forever separated from God in hell because you did not respond to the gospel message. That's some incredible authority that he's given to us. You can have peace with God. Your sins can be forgiven, so you can have peace and you can know him. You can know this peace that we're talking about. Today being Father's Day, kind of reminiscent on some different Father's Day things. And one thing I remember as a dad of when your kids were younger, and some of you who have young kids, you can identify with this perfectly. Like, the kids, your kids just have this incredible trust, right? They really do. Like, my kids would just fling themselves, you know, airborne at me, you know, expecting at any point I, I'm going to be able to grab them and catch them. And sometimes that's kind of crazy. You know, you turn around, and they're, like, already leaping in the air, and, like, you catch them, you know, because they had this just this total confidence in your ability as a father that you're not going to let them down, right? You're not going to miss. If you've ever been one of those dads who missed, right? Yes, sad. Uh, that takes a while to build that confidence back up. But God doesn't miss, right? He, he, he catches us. He's secure. And this is the gospel message that God gives us, that we can trust the gospel. We don't have to do cute or creative things with the gospel. 
We don't have to manipulate or, or say things or use our words in a way that Paul spoke against, which was crafty and deceitful or manipulative or even like pretending we have some intelligence that we don't just to make ourselves look better. And we more and more separate ourselves from the very simple gospel message, which I reminded you last week that Satan continually blinds the minds of those who don't believe, right? They can't, many of you sitting in here, as I mentioned last week, you can't repeat the gospel to your kids. As Stephen said, I can identify, right? You can identify, dads, with that. Why is it that when you go to talk to your kids about the gospel, they're like four years old and you're just intimidated by that? Like, oh, well, let's go see Pastor John because he'll have the right answers, right? Because I don't know what to say, like, right? And you've heard the gospel like a billion times in your life. And it's simple. Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. He brings peace with God by his, trans, by his wounds. We are healed. Amazing, simple, but powerful. And so in closing, our head application. We, you and I, and not me at a level above you, we are Christ's ambassadors. Romans 10, 7, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5, 20. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Have peace with God. That's what reconciliation means, having peace with God. And so you are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through you. In our heart, if your faith is weak, if you're fearful, if you're emotionally unhealthy, if you find yourself angry and bitter, and looking at everybody as your enemies, the very people that you're to go and plead with, not yell and scream at, but plead with. Come back to God. If you need that faith, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And I've talked about this before. The word of Christ is essentially, it's the gospel message. It's the message of Christ. And so our hands application, Jesus came to save sinners. Now he sends you out to sinners. He sends you out to sinners. See, as long as we think we're pretty good, and when Jesus came for us, like it just needed like a slight modification of our behavior because we weren't all that bad, then you don't get the gospel. The gospel says you're broken, destitute, eternally separated from God for eternity in hell because you don't measure up. You do not have the righteousness. And as long as we're looking at this as some sort of spectrum, and it's like out there are those trans people or that group of people or that's this group of people, they're the really, really sinful people. But, you know, uh, those of us who go to church, we're over here closer to Jesus, apart from Jesus. And as long as, like, I don't really have to go out in this world and share the gospel, I can do, you know, the, the easy, simple stuff with the people who are kind of nice and they're cute and they're in G-Kids, Right? But to go and share the gospel to those hard-to-reach and hard-to-identify-with people, that's somebody else's job, right? That's like special calling for pastors and elders. But that's not the gospel. That's not the truth of Scripture. We are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ. So if you want Christ to speak to those people... He's going to speak through you. 
He's going to speak through you. And you're the one that has to plead. Turn or burn, right? No, woke you up, right? Woke you up. No, we're going to plead with them. Return to God. Find the peace of God. Be reconciled with God. And we trust the gospel message. We do. We just trust. Here's the simple gospel. That's stupid. That's silly. That's ignorant. That's ancient stuff. I'm going to trust the gospel. I'm just going to sow it and let God do all the results. So let's make sure that those who are in our sphere of influence and those who we have the opportunity to speak truth to, that we just plead with them. Come back to God. God loves you, and Jesus came for you. Be reconciled to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the peace that we have through you, God. And I pray, God, we're, we're all guilty. I confess to you. We're guilty of having our salvation, and we want to lock our doors from the inside and keep the world out. And God, I pray you'll help us to remember that we're, we're to leave this room, and we're to go and make disciples of all nations. And God, we thank you today that we celebrate three baptisms that, you, that disciples are being made. And God, I pray for each one of us that we'll recall our baptism, we'll recall the moment we put our faith in you and we show the world who we are through our baptism, God, that we'll remember that each and every day as we go out into this world. God, may it stick with us that we can't let anger and fear take our eyes off the mission. But God, allow us to see what the purpose of us being here is, why you redeemed us and you told us to go. As you came, send us, out, us out to go. And God, I pray that you will allow us to be bold and trust the gospel message. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.